Ask the GMs, episode 24, Player and Game Master Archetypes. Good evening, this is Ask the GMs with and Zach talking about RPGs and board games. I want to welcome you to another fun evening with us, and I hope you're having a good time. Passing it on to RC. Again, um, today we're going to talk about how, uh, how we hate the archetypes and how we've Falling into that role before. Passing it off to Brian. Hey, everybody. Um, Brian here. Excited to go over some archetypes and uh, learn more about myself. And Yeah. I'll pass it off to Pat. Hey, everybody. This is Pat. I'm glad everybody's joining us for this evening. Um, not only is there, they're not all hate. There's some archetypes in there that we do love. Um, and you know, that being said, uh, we aren't experts on the topic. So of course there are going to be more archetypes than we present this evening. And also this is our interpretation of these archetypes. You know, everybody's got their own opinion. How about you, Sean? Oh yeah. Archetypes have been around since the beginning of the game and they're going to be around till the end of the game, but, and everybody's got their favorites and everybody's got their most hated. Tossing it back to Zach. Well, actually, forget Zach, because I'm going to give us a friendly little reminder shout out that uh, Kate Fear Games is the store that we know and love and play all of our RPGs and board games at and have just a grand old time. So if you aren't there already and if you're in the lower southeast north carolina area um pay them a visit and say hello tell them tell them ask the gm sent you and uh we'll see where that goes they probably won't know anyways uh zach <laughs> want to lead us into tonight's discussion i mean i thought i was completely forgotten about it we'll, we'll take care of it <laughs> so as mentioned there are a lot of archetypes i don't think anyone can clearly name them all there's always a variant or an exception. If you go on YouTube and look up RPG archetypes or just Google, you'll find many. However, there are a couple that like everyone's narrowed down. Like there are a couple standouts where everyone's like, yeah, I know exactly what that is. So we're all gonna just kind of round robin, describe one in terms of its title, kind of break down what it is, talk about it a little bit, and then move on the next one, give our opinions. Should be a fun episode. Might get a little vitriol, but we're here to have a fun time. Starting us off, the Power Gamer. RC, would you like to define the Power Gamer? Yeah, the, the Power Gamer is the, the min-maxer. What is the most bang for my buck or the one good thing that my character's great at and amazing and wonderful? Um, I've fallen into the Power Gamer shenanigans more than once usually to some hysterical or ironic effect i don't intend to last for more than like a session it's like oh this is a one-off character i'm fine with making something that does a stupid thing but um whenever you have people that you've sat down for a long-term game and they've definitely set up something where it's like no this is the one thing i do it's the one thing i'm good at and i'm like man you're really hamstringing yourself um, I'm sure everybody's got their own experiences with this. Anybody want to share? 
I think Pat has played a recent game with a mid-maxer. Yeah. Um, what I'd say about the Power Gamer is um, I think a lot of us have been there because um, a lot of us coming from a video gaming background, you know, you don't think about the rest of the party in the video game because it's just you playing. Um, and, you know, we all want to be the best we possibly can be. And in a video game, you're not really role playing. Uh, most of them. I, I know there's MMOs and shit like that. Um, what I would say about the Power Gamer that's the biggest attraction is basically what RC said is, say, you're amazing at combat, for instance. Well, your character more than likely is just going to be kind of shite at uh, the actual roleplay or um, just just other aspects in the game. Um, and I know like, you know, you don't, you don't have to go Jack of all trades. That's also a different kind of player archetype, but, uh, just keep in mind the party balance and how, how you want to be regarded at the table would be my, my thing to say on power gaming. Well, also the power gamer too, tends to hog attention by trying to insert themselves with their specific aspect into almost every situation, too, in the negative side. It's like, oh, you know, we're in a social situation. I'm going to attack because I'm just a combat power gamer. So, boom, here we go. And to be fair, it's not always all bad. Some games expect you to power game. I've been told that Pathfinder 2 has a focus on that, where you need to kind of max out everything you're doing depending on how the game master is setting their encounters and that's okay one of the things i prefer in call of cthulhu is you really can't power game too much like you can be really great in a couple aspects but it's not going to save you in a well-rounded rpg i personally can't stand like uber power gamers where it's just like i gotta win at everything i'm the best combat master ever i'm gonna punch everything in the face it's like as a game master, it makes me want to drop a house on them. I'd say, um, although, w- would you agree, Zach, that Pulp Cthulhu uh, tends more to the power gaming kind of style? Because that, everything's going to be over the top, so why not? That's more action-focused. It's not a negative. It's, that's just the nature of that style of play. Yeah. And um, something, I guess, I would say as far as comparison... Um, as far as characters, my most beloved characters are characters with great flaws. Um, and, you know, just, just think of, you know, who would be more beloved to you? Superman, who's great at everything and damn near unkillable and unstoppable. Or Batman, who's just a rich guy that knows karate. And he's probably the greatest detective. I don't know. I know which one's more near and dear to me. Is it Richard, Richie the Hammer Janelli? <laughs> Bringing the S tier. See, Pat, I'm going to pick Superman. I'm sorry, buddy. Like, Batman's cool, but Superman's literally an alien. It's okay. It's okay. Well, I, I don't think that's a rookie. Also, with the Pulp Cthulhu thing, yes, you know, the combat characters in Pulp Cthulhu are over the top, but so are the uh, brainiacs in that game in the sense of, you know, mad scientists and, you know, 
all sorts of super intellectuals too. Everything is over the top. So it balances itself out in that sense because you're not going to be as power. You may be, you know, a two-fisted, hard-bitten detective with matching 45s that guns everything down. But when Egbert, the scientist, steps out with his lightning rifle and, you know, puts down six deep ones with one shot, that you kind of are like, well. (laughs) Okay, moving on to the next archetype. Sean, would you like to define what a murder hobo is? Oh, the murder hobo. Um, murder hobos basically kill everything and keep moving on. And, and a lot of people love to apply that to an old school style of play because they go into the dungeon and supposedly kill everything and move on and stuff like that. But it really, the murder hobo kills everything. Go into town, you're going to go get it in room. You know, the innkeeper says it's going to be, you know, two gold for the night. No, I say it's going to be free or I'm going to kill your, you know, just all your serving wenches and stuff like that. Stuff. So, I mean, it's one of those type situations where they really are psychopath characters. In my opinion. And I find overall, you tend to see it just mainly in d and I'm not saying it doesn't exist in other systems. It's just... Other systems have mechanical and thematic ways to stopping that. Versus D&D, like if you let it roll for a while, you can just go to town and town like murdering everyone as you go. Well, especially the power difference between a NPC like villager or, and a, even just a mid-level, say 5th to 8th level um, D&D character is immense. Just the hit point difference alone armor class difference and everything like that. In other games, such as, say, RuneQuest or uh, even over-the-top games like Barbarians and Lemurians, such like that, that the uh, common villager can still kill a hero. But in D&D, a zero-level character NPC is not going to probably be able to even scratch the armor, you know, 10th-level character. Yeah, if I recall, just the generic crab, like the crab, like a like a crab you would get out of like the docks, can technically based on stats compared to a a zero level NPC can kill four NPCs before they kill that crab. <laughs> a dog can yeah. terrorize a village. I'd say the key divine uh, defining feature of a murder hobo is the fact that they have zero consideration for the consequences of their actions until it bites them in the ass. And at that point, they're no longer a murder hobo. They're a corpse. My experience is most of the murder murder hobos, when the consequences finally come to bite them in the ass, is when they transform into the whiner character. And it also depends on the system, too. Like, call it Cthulhu. You're just going to have guys show up with Tommy guns and blow you away. Or, you know, an Elder God's going to squish you like jelly. D&D, it's harder to do. And technically, most systems, it's harder to do because you're like, you're really like, it's like, okay, the DM God is coming out and stopping this. And it's kind of really throws off the universe for a little bit. Well, also, too, in a game like Call of Cthulhu, let's say you decide, I'm going to go in there and kill that shopkeeper and take all the guns in the gun store. 
odds are he's got, you know, something big enough that can drop your character in one shot. It's a shotgun, really. Yeah, I mean, a 12-gauge sawed-off, point-blank range, 46 damage. Average Call of Cthulhu character, 12 hit points. He can do enough to vaporize, almost, a Cthulhu character. Where in D&D, oh, I'm the village militia, you know, here I am with my spear. It's like, depending on the system, you know, like 1d6 damage, maybe a little bit. That's it. That's all I got. <laughs> and as a sidebar, this is why you give them man catchers. It's like, you have to make a strength check. What? <laughs> oh, yeah, the more of them that are on you, the harder it gets. <laughs> Moving on to the, the next topic. Pat, would you like to define what an edge lord is? All right. So to me, an edge lord is um, a player that does everything for style points, but it all comes off very cringe. Um, it, it's easier for me to pull up an example of one than like define it. We uh, it's pretty much I... pretty much every bad Batman character. Yeah, we um, just just doing things for the putting sunglasses on and walking away for, from explosions. Um, we had a character in our Children of Fear campaign just shadow boxing in the jail cell while waiting for, you know, the punishment of a crime that they um, put on us. And we're just like, why, why, the, why the hell are you doing this? Why are you here? <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I don't know. I in my brain, or I visualize just like the goth emo kid with the hair swoosh and just swishing it to the side. I'm and so like, dark and mysterious you wouldn't understand. Yeah. And I two katanas because katanas are the best weapons ever. So I don't know. I also see a weeb in that position. But that's just uh, my mental picture of an edgelord. And it's like, oh, the fires of my passion burn so dark and my my um my anger is boundless and blah blah blah. I mean you can paint this picture yourself. Instead of we talking instead of talking to the, the party, I'm just gonna monologue for an extended oh, yeah. period of time. But not oh, actually anything. <laughs> really Without bad really bad emo cringe Batman. <laughs> Brian, don't you even come at Batman right now, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hear you. You're not 100% wrong. My parents but... are dead. Bleh, money. Beat up poor Feel people. My anger and regret. Fuck, I've been called out. Or Batman has. Who knows? Half the crime in Gotham wouldn't occur if I invested my billions of dollars into improving the economy. Yeah. Instead of building tanks. <laughs> <laughs> so I can beat up on guys that wear purple suits. <laughs> Just one guy. Just the <laughs> one guy that wears the purple suit. And the short guy. <laughs> the with one the with the disability? <laughs> Does anyone else have go. anything to add to the image <laughs> board? Um, I, I can't 100% pinpoint where it started in D&D, but it's going to be around when the Dritz novels came out. Yeah. The Dritz wannabes that didn't want to. I can do it on my own. Every drow 
player character was an edgelord. Or, I am the, you know, forsaken of my people and stuff like that. It's like, I don't know. That's and the 13th one that we've had. Now, would you consider a horny bard as an edgelord? No, that's a whole other archetype we're going to get to. I did okay. play a drowned dominatrix bard that was pretty fun. <laughs> now, and, anytime you're making fun of yourself, that doesn't count as being an edgelord. You have to take yourself so seriously that, you know, you become a caricature. Oh, no, I was telling people to sit all the time. It was great. <laughs> And I think you can have dark and brooding characters, but they still have to be characters. They still have to interact with the party and world. And the problem is, Ed's Lords like to like write their own comics. Yeah. Okay, the next archetype, I'm going to cover this one. The Rules Lawyer. There's not the worst archetype. Sometimes you do need them. It's important that more than one person knows the rules. The problem with the rules lawyer is they might offer the advice or the rule when it's not asked for or when it's in competition to what the game master just ruled or decided on. So they're useful, but sometimes they need to keep their mouths fucking shut. Well, with the rules lawyer, it's the Spider-Man thing. With greater power comes greater responsibility. You know all the rules of the game and you're playing in somebody else's game, it's your responsibility not to upshow the GM, but try to help them. Especially if it's something obscure, because I know that there's been several times when I've had weird rules and us going into RuneQuest, like, if you guys know your role, your roles or your rules better than I do, please step up and say something, because... I'm just trying to get a general overview so that we can play with the system and figure out how it works. Yeah, and that's fine. That's 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 when you want a good person who has a handle of the rules. The rules lawyer is the one that's going to use a lot of exceptions and counter cases to either get something over on another player or the game master. Oh, and when the rules lawyer initiates the, the debate with the GM and uh, you're just sitting there on the side while they bitch for five minutes and it's like jesus christ just drop it and let's move on like 90 percent of the time the rules i mean well hell the rules we play with usually are loose anyways we're we're there to have fun and whenever it stops being fun then why the hell are we there yep well the rules lawyer also can never seem to a, a hardcore bad rule lawyer can never seem to understand the ultimate rule, which is the game master who's running the game has the final say on everything. And if they say green is brown, and in their game, that's it. You know, you said your piece, move on. And... Yeah, a big part of that, and it comes up with other archetypes. Just let the person make the decision and keep your mouth shut. If it's going to blow blow up on them, let it blow up on them. Except for this next one. Brian. Yes. Would you like to cover the pet rock? Um, yeah, the pet rock. Uh, it's not the rock, much less interesting. Um, the pet rock is basically a 
player who doesn't actively participate in games or contribute significantly to storytelling or gameplay. Um, just like a real-life pet rock, they just kind of sit there. Um, don't do as much. Might remain passive during combat or try to make a stand, but that would be kind of edgelordy, I guess. Um, just at the end of the day, just, just do something, um, please. Um, it's, it's not fun when you're just sitting there, when you're, when you're just sitting there, like, how are you enjoying yourself not doing anything? My question. Yeah. You're not here to take up space as an inanimate object. You are here to do something. That's where you kind of look at them and be like, are you just here for the Mountain Dew and, you know, Doritos? You know? Wait, there's Mountain Dew and Doritos? <gasps> who, who, why'd you tell Brian? Gamer Fuel. <laughs> like, I, the goal is everyone to, is there to have fun, but, like, you need to do something. Like, don't don't sit on the laurels and let all the other players carry you along. Yeah. It it gets tiresome when you have to sit there and make every decision for everything. And you're like, um, little, you know, commentary from from y'all would be nice. Or you give everyone else a vignette and like that was really cool that you like you went to that opium den like and I stuck to the library to spy on this contact. And I, I went my mob guy to get some illegal guns. It's like other guys like um, I went to the dentist. Or better yet, I went to the library and they said it would be two weeks before I could get a library card to find out the book. So I guess I'm done. Not thinking you can steal the book, buy the book. <laughs> or, you know, copy from pages, like anything else you can do. And I, I think Pet Rock, because I've I've been in a situation recently where they uh, we had a Pet Rock, but they were a newer player, and at every turn it was, hey, Pat, what should I do? Hey, uh, you know, and I think they were uh, they didn't want to do the wrong thing, which put them into just complete inaction. Um, so. I would say to avoid that is just do something. It, do what you want to do. It the doesn't secret, matter. The secret whether, answer is it's very rare that there's a wrong answer. Yeah. And, you know, if somebody else at the table doesn't like what you did, well, hey, it makes conflict. It makes it interesting. You know, hey, there's drama in your game now. Congrats. <laughs> also, go ahead, Tron. No, I was just going to say, I mean, that's more of, you know, the quiet, you know, inexperienced person, you know, versus the pet rock just has a history of never doing anything. And you know they have experience. And, you know, everybody's going to be more lenient with a newbie that's, like, never played the game before. Like, hey, this is, you know, what you, some of your options that you can do here. And the GMs usually will give some options, you know. Uh, but the pet rock has been playing for five, ten years plus, and they still are just sitting there doing nothing and not speaking. Right, they're they're not doing anything, and I think at the end of the day, it it's detrimental to them. I mean, it kind of sucks for everybody, but 
if you're not doing anything, you're not gonna get the spotlight. Like none nobody's no game master is gonna be like, oh, we need to like give this person a meaningful meaningful storyline because they know it's not gonna go anywhere. So it's not advantageous. And to be fair, I think that's probably one of my more um archetypes that I probably pr- portray, but I just chalk it up to being new and but that's me personally. Well, to be fair, Brian, you ask good questions on like what could I roll here or this or that. And you do work on developing a full character. The pet rock basically reverts to almost an NPC status. Okay, thanks. Thanks for uh making making me not feel like an imposter. Thank you. Throwing it over to Pat. Tell us about those backseat players. All right, a backseat player. Uh, I'm going to start out with I am guilty of it, as I'm I'm guilty for a lot of these things, but aren't we all? Um, A backseat player is the person that always wants to slide in there and be like, hey, hey, you should should probably do this, or you should probably do that. The thing about it is the backseat player, they see the scene or the scenario play in their mind a certain way, and they just... They just gotta give in, gotta get in there and tell whomever, however they should be doing things. Um, biggest thing to avoid doing this is just if if you notice that you're talking maybe too much, just shut the hell up. Uh, <laughs> that's all I can say about that. But yeah, they they're they're just the busybody of of the table. They're also the worst if you combine them with the power gamer. Oh God. Yep. And I'll admit that I kind of do that, but I've also been a game master for years, and and I almost always offer it as advice. But I'm like, let's do this cool thing, and if the person says no, it's like I'll I'll drop it. But it's more like Ooh, we could do this cool thing, like rob these banks. How many banks? Like four of them at the same time. Yeah, Th- this one's a finesse thing to uh, you know try and dodge because I know Zach will agree with me here. Say we're playing a co-op board game. And you're seeing, say, we're we're playing um, Shadows Over Camelot, and you're seeing somebody make like just an ass play, and it it just makes you tweak your eyeball a little bit, going like, "Oh fuck, it's it's not as efficient as it could be." He's and, the traitor. And in situations like that, I'll usually keep my I try to keep my mouth shut unless it's like literally like like this will cost us the game. Or, or maybe it's like a different game, like it's like a Euro game or a game getting points. Like I'm gonna make this move. I'm just leaning over, like, hey, not to like change your move, but if you if you take the move to the to the right of that, that's 17 more points. But that still means that they're taking a move. <laughs> the worst part is sometimes everybody becomes a backseat gamer if you have a pet rock at the table. Which is like the problem with with the backseat player is, is the new player is the one that suffers. Yeah, it's ne- it's never the old player. Well, maybe the pet rock and the backseat player are symbiotic. They depend on each other's qualities. That sounds like a a master blaster situation, <laughs> which can work. I'm going to cover the next variant. It's very close to the backseat player it's the backseat game master 
I try to often, if I'm playing in someone else's game, even if they're running Call of Cthulhu or something else, like I will offer like, hey, that rules on this page, or consider this check or this skill instead. But for the most part, I try to keep my mouth shut because I'm not running this game. It's very similar to the rules lawyers. It's like, you're not there to make ruling for anyone else. If you want to help someone make characters because you know how to make them, that's fine. You're providing like useful advice and useful service to the game master. But you are not like the baboon on his shoulder writing them. I think RC pointed out like, hey, I don't know a lot about RuneQuest. We recently made characters in it. So if there's a rule I'm missing or like a plot element or a theme, throw it at me. Well, that's also... To me, that's different than being a lawyer. That's contributing to the Oberon game and stuff, especially with like a game like, as you brought up, RuneQuest, which is so lore, so extensive in the different types of characters. No one GM can really know everything off the top of their head unless they've been running it since literally 1978 kind of thing. Yeah. It's and a game with almost... 40 years worth of information backlogged on it that it's it's kind of hard to take in. Yep. But, and that's where I think there's a difference. You almost have to draw a line of differentiating with both the rules lawyer and the the player, the backseat gamer and the backseat game master is that there's a difference between being a veteran of the RPG or board game or whatever and trying to offer assistance versus the no 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 i that's not how i would do it this is how i do it and it's rule 1.21 on page 38 says that you need to do it this way you know and that's what separates the good from the bad yeah it's it's in the intent it's the difference between critique it's like no 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 like you continued like describing the scene i will open the book to the page you need and put it in front of you because i'm not in the scene or even write a note and hand it to the GM doing stuff that says, hey, there's a rule about that on page 52. They can then choose whether they want to apply it or not. But you have, you know, filled in a little gap that maybe they forgot about or didn't know about or something like that versus the open contesting in front of the other players, which never ends in a pretty situation. Don't fight God. Or City Hall, for that matter. Brian, do you want to cover Fairweather fans? Uh, Fairweather fans. Yeah, I can. Um, Fairweather fans are everywhere. You know, um, from sports to RPGs. But Fairweather fans in this context is, um, you know, you, it's very similar to the Pet Rock, in my opinion. Um, they show up they're on the phone um you know they're there to hang out but not actively engaged in the activity um you know it's like a minor hobby for them and kind of sucks for everybody around in my opinion but yeah and, and they can even be like good role players or like make good characters but they like lose interest or just kind of sit there half the time yeah, they're kind of a pet peeve of mine because my thing is, is I'm there to enjoy what it is we're doing and have fun with the people around the table doing it. 
Um, but if they're putting like zero energy into what we're doing, then what do they expect to get out of it? You know, um, I don't know. Just just be there. Be there for it. And there's a difference between, hey, I'm not in the scene on my phone. And no, it's like, is no one looking at me on my phone the entire time? I mean, we all have gotten a text or a phone call during a game and you got to, you know, answer back about something, stuff like that, because life happens and stuff. But the type of person I think you're talking about is the type of person that's on the phone every second, even having to, like, pause their phone while they respond what they're doing. Like, okay, I shoot at the guy, and then they're back right that second scrolling through their phone, stuff like that. They're they're not even involved enough to participate in the action. They just tell what they're doing and roll the dice and go back to their phone. The next one we have up is a a variant on the Edgelord. I call this guy Mr. Mackey. Everything has to be super serious, guys, okay? Super serious? Like, can't have joke characters, can't have a really goofy moment, doesn't like chaos, all serious all the time. For me, they're just very tiring. Also, I'm a little chaotic as a game master, and as a player type, I'm more chaotic than I am, like, say, lawful or, or, you know, ordered. But I have to be serious at work all day. I'm fine with goofy stuff, within reason. Well, it it depends on what everybody's threshold. You know, if everybody's there, you know, for a super serious game, and maybe it's, you know, some of these, like, indie RPGs that are dealing with a super serious subject, like trauma recovery or something like that, and, and you come in, you know, and, cracking bad jokes and you know being disruptive that's a whole nother thing but regular D game you know any fantasy rpg or sci-fi rpg you can't be serious all the time and funny shit happens <laughs> or or even call of cthulhu you can have plenty of light moments it helps offset the horror <laughs> oh my god <laughs> but even in alien even in the alien rpg like and it's like we went to some kind of dark places. Like Pat ripped a guy's heart out of his chest. Um, oh, I was willing to let a couple of you die. Like there, there were some moments where it was like, ah, oh, this is going to get out of hand. But then we had the moment where the minigun shot at nothing, and it was, it was the biggest minigun misfire of existence. But it shot at stuff. Just nothing it in particular. Hit, it didn't hit shit. <laughs> Well, also, I mean, even my dad, who was a combat Marine, he would tell stories about funny things happening at the worst possible moment. You know, you know, like they had a tank shot out from underneath them. They're like, yeah, that's going to leave a mark. (laughs) Uh, I think the biggest thing to avoid being Mr. Mackey is, one, read the room. You know, obviously, you can tell how people are going to be. Like, you know, I'm going to pick on RC a little bit. I know RC leads a little bit towards chaos. So I know RC, if given the opportunity, will probably do some crazy off-the-wall shit. Now, if I were looking for a very serious game, 
I might not play with RC, and that's okay. But, you know, that's just how it is. And um, also, don't come to a Call of Cthulhu pulp game and tell me you want a serious game. You sat down at the wrong table, bud. <laughs> or a realistic game. <laughs> to back RC up, he has played very serious characters before. Yeah, yeah, I know. I would, I would call it Delta Green. He was very serious. Almost the whole time. It's up until the very end, and then I started to get kind of wacky. But you were also going bonkers. Yeah, I was down to like 18 sanity, and I started with 75. I, I was not in a good way. You burned so down really Well, the biggest thing is it comes down to is everybody having fun. You know? And sometimes the Mr. Mackeys are the one person that's not having fun. Because to them, they can't have fun if people are, you know, laughing and having fun. It's got to be this somber, like, theatrical moment. Like, you know, we're on stage performing Hamlet. You can't crack jokes, you know. It's like, no, we're pretending to be elves in somebody's, you know, living room. We can crack jokes. And not to be the Debbie Downer, we I am going to be Mr. Mackey for a little bit on our next topic. If you fucking cheat on my table, you're not coming back. I can't stand cheaters. Here, here. Yeah, really can't say anything about this. That's pretty dead on. Yep. There's no defending a cheater. That's just about table etiquette, really. It's about human etiquette. Yeah. You know, I mean, somebody that it's something as simple as an RPG or a board game is going to cheat. That's, to me, a red flag that, hey, there's bigger issues at play here than just cheating at a game. This is something that we may not want to necessarily wrap ourselves into, you know. And when I say cheating, I do mean cheating. I don't mean, hey, that was maybe kind of cocked, or, hey, maybe on looking at my character sheet, I should have rolled this instead as a skill or an ability. Those are more honest and usually if done every once in a while, like within the the realm of like, that's fine. Well, even like it, stuff. Go ahead. Sir. It's ways like, no, this is a constant behavior. Yeah. Constant verifiable behavior by multiple witnesses and such. I mean, everybody has made a mistake like, Oh shoot. You know, I shot him with my bow and arrow, but I, forgot that two rooms ago in the dungeon I ran out of arrows, you know, or you know. At that, I, at, at that point, as a game has to be like, it's fine. We'll just, we'll just go with it. It's just yeah. an arrow. Or you roll the dice and you read the numbers wrong, because you're all rushing around trying to roll dice and see what's going on during a high action scene, and somebody's like, hey, Sean, you know, that, that's a 69 not a 99, you know. Like, or even Warhammer oh, Fantasy, it's like, oh no, you got to reverse the numbers, and that's the hit location. It's like, oh, so I hit him in the leg, not the head. It's like, yeah, that matters sometimes. Yeah, and that's all fine, and you know, that's just the way it goes, you know, kind of thing. But like you said, the willful intent to cheat is the the problem, not the making a mistake, but the conscious choice of I'm going to. Who set up the parameters so I can, you know, cheat on dice rolls, on behaviors, or whatever context of the game that's being cheated at. 
and and this isn't specifically related to the cheater, but if if you're having a bad day at an RPG and like you've rolled say you've critically failed five times that session and you get a little heated about it, you can always get up and walk away for a minute and come back to it and you'll probably feel okay about it. Like if there's no reason to cheat, there's there's ways to deal with if you're having a bad day to have a bad day. I'd still come out of it laughing about it at the end. And um, as Ian said in pre uh, previous episode, sometimes mistakes are good for the story that enrich it, you know? Um, and we've all had those dice be like shit rolls. I think Zach lives in the shit rolls world where we just grab those dice and put them in the corner because uh, they're in timeout for right now. Zach, but, um, we, Zach we, we, we just rolled through those last five comments. Like, yeah. I rolled seventy nine and above constantly, so very easy combats. The guys just like threw their weapons down and let let you stab them. Yeah, if Zach's GMing, you want him to run your monsters. We'll just say that. Uh, <laughs> um, but I'm going to say something. There's some like cheating techniques that I've kind of seen. Not saying that if you use dice trays or dice towers, you are a cheater. Like goddamn. No, but like, you know, typically some of those are some ways that people, oh, just throw it in the corner and pick it up real quick and not tell you what it is or completely or, obscure everybody's view from it. Um, or so, putting a third die in the tray that always is set at a zero. Oh, I haven't thought of that. That way when you drop, especially on percentage rolls, like you have a D10 on a zero in the tray, drop your two d ten. Oh, it's a it's a zero five. It's a critical hit. Um, that type of stuff. But those are just some things to look out for at your perspective tables. Um, and you you'll know it when you see it, or maybe the GM won't as they're across the ways. But you know the neighbors, and if they bring it up to your attention, just handle it as. As soon as possible, because if you let it just keep going on, it'll, everything will fester and go to shit. The only warning I will give is I'll bring out my big Cthulhu dice tower and I'll make all the players roll in there. And if the hit isn't like taken from that, it's like, okay, we're calling you out then. And also, it goes to age and maturity of the player. And I'm just saying this not to excuse anybody's behavior or anything like that, but like when I've run D&D games for school-age kids, they get so wrapped up in the idea, the story of being, you know, this character and stuff like that, that they're afraid that if they get a bad dice roll, they're going to, like, you know, the fun's going to stop. So they panic and they do something to cheat, and it's a learning moment for them. But with adults, no. It's, it's just not acceptable. Yeah, you're also breaking the social contract. Like, not a game rule, so just the social contract of us playing a game where we all agreed to like follow the same general rules together as a team and have fun. Some people get on game masters like, well, they can cheat their dice. Like, that is a very rare exception, often, and that is a that is a responsibility that they're offered. So they have to handle a lot. And you know that's. That's been a discussion for years is GMs fudging their dice and there's very, you know, very strongly voiced schools of thought on it and stuff like that. And, but 
a cheating at the table where you are trying to just get one over on everybody else and be the best at something that, you know, that's different from the GM saying, usually like, oh, I don't want the whole party to die right now. So you've got one hit point left when really you should have been mixed so you can help save the party. Kind of or maybe that monster had 60 HP, but it really has 40 HP. Yeah, I'd say 99.9% of the time, GM's fudged dice is going to be to the benefit of the party. Because, you know, it's like, oh, maybe that goblin didn't crit on this wizard that just came out, you know, and immediately put him in the dirt. Uh, One thing I'm okay with, like, if a monster's really low and someone's having, like, a bad time, like, they've missed a lot. Well, no, no, like, if a monster has, like, low HP and, like, one player is like having a bad time. I might bump his HP so they get the final blow. Well, also, and from my years, my experience also has been that if I feel a situation warrants the GM possibly thinking about budging dice, my theory is why bother even? It's more like, okay. You guys can do this. You do it. You know, let's move the story on. And, you know, and not even, you know, why even bother rolling if you know you're going to change it in their favor? You know, it's like, especially if the degree of the success does not really matter. And some of that just comes story. with experience. The hardest thing to learn is, like, knowing when you should, like, actually be willing to allow rolls. And then you have to accept every result of that roll. And sometimes, excuse me, sometimes people will say stuff and they're like, oops, I was not ready for one of those options. I should have either just said no or disavowed it. Exactly. And, you know, but, you know, it's that's that's a whole different beast than, you know, the willful want to serendipitously, you know, cheat at the rules. And like, Sometimes that's playing the game. Like my last Tuesday game, I rode hot. I didn't fail a single time, but that was just life. And I was rolling open on the table. Okay. Well. Oh, go ahead. No, you can go, Sean. Oh, I was just going to say cheating just steals all the joy for the game itself, anyway. Because what what fun is a victory if you cheated? Well, having seen many people in this room constantly roll their eyes at one particular person all the time. Just rolling to grab more daggers so I can send more daggers that way, because that's usually how that works. Well, moving on to maybe a less serious topic. Sean, do you want to cover the actor or the method actor, the person that's constantly a thespian? Oh, yeah. The person that's never out of character. Always everything is in game, in character, and, you know, going on. Sometimes it's a GM, sometimes it's a player, and it can be really fun if everybody is trying to go that route. But it, it can also get bothersome and tiresome and interrupting, you know, even. Especially when it's like, Okay, we need to solve this problem in the game. 
But the person's like, no, no, that's out of character for me to do that. So I'm going to hinder you guys because that's more in my character and stuff. And that can bring up a lot of animosity between players. Yeah, I'd say the method actually is not not one that I usually have run into in the wild. Um, I think I, I like them for the most part whenever I do run into them. Because, um, you know, I'm in there for the RP. Um, but I, I think I've seen online, like, you know, other groups playing different RPGs. And there's that one person that just goes way over the top and it comes off cringy and it's like, oh, okay, okay, like, get out of character for a minute. This is this is too much. Well, um, as anything we've been talking about today, these are like, none of these are individually bad. It's taken to an extreme where it becomes unsufferable. Well, I think um, everybody in this group, I wasn't part of that group, but I heard stories about, it. you know, somebody that had information about the game occurrence and didn't reveal it to the rest of out of character and it was like center point to the whole purpose of the game no that 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 put us back months like months of games exactly but and that's the type of thing where the method actor is dangerous it's you know and as i said a lot of times it's really fun if you've got somebody going and i i admit i'm one of those people that I do crazy voices and get into things and stuff. And I can even up sometimes need to be told, Sean, rein it in and quiet down for a moment. Got to do some other things. <laughs> things and stuff like that. And and stuff. But, you know, as Pat said, they're fun for the most part. But, you know, it's when, you know, the character's like, well, you know, my character's this, so I'm going to do this. And it's like, yeah, but that's really cringy. That's really gross or disgusting, you know, making comments or jokes that are inappropriate that are in character, you know, kind of thing. You know, nobody's here to feel like they're, you know, experiencing a 20 on creep Um, I got a question for RC and Brian. Um... Whenever I was playing Felix Jaeger in our Warhammer campaign, was I methoding too much for Felix as far as, like, the things he did? Because, you know, I wanted him to be, like, a pretentious young lordling that, you know, was snooty. Uh, was was there anything I ever did that was just like, you motherfucker? Uh, I'm not sure if Brian has an opinion, but I, I was fine with it. I'm going to say yes, even though I wasn't there. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Wait. Okay. Oh, yep, that's right. Well, Brian, you were there in my heart, I guess. <laughs> the player you always wanted. Oh, uh, no, I, I. It really made me want to attempt to actually do it whenever you were doing it. I was like, man, I can kind of get into character for this guy. He's just kind of quiet, dumb, a big barbarian priest man. Well, it was your, I mean, it was, you, you, you jumped in mid campaign for a new system you had never played before. So I think it's okay. Well, Pat, moving on to the next archetype, it's one that you flat out admitted that you're guilty of the GM hog. All right. So the GM hog, 
They're a little bit like the backseat G- uh, game master as well, basically. And, you know, as we talked about the backseat player, they just want to be in everything in the spotlight. Um, they want to drive the story forward and they just want to make it a me show. Um, sometimes when you're really excited about the game, and um, I think we've mentioned this before, say you are have potentially had the syndrome of you're always the GM. So whenever you get to be a player in a game, you know, you may get the syndrome of being the GM hog. Um, But just know while you're at the table, like give everybody their time. You know, uh, I think Zach had a tip before was basically like, I do my one or two or three things and then like take a step back. Yep, do two to three things in a scene and pass the buck. The GM hog I can see also being sometimes combined with the power gamer. It oh, can definitely. be. Especially if the power gamer's going for the Superman attitude. I can do everything. The next archetype is what we want our listeners to be. We want you to be the Chad Shill guy. You're just going to show up be like, hey, I'm going to roll a character. It's going to be fun. Middle of the road. We're just going to roll with a guy. That's the guy we all want to be. Like Brian. Like Brian. Okay, guys. Be the Brian guy. (laughs) Well, I've never seen Brian get bent out of shape. I mean, it I has have, but... <laughs> well, in the sense of making a display out of it, you know, throwing a tantrum, you know, getting pissed off. I've seen him get upset, but he's kept his cool. With it, you know, which as having game for as long as I have, I was like, okay, that's cool. Tip I think, I think, you, I think you've seen me lose my shit more than you've seen Brian lose his shit. <laughs> Exactly. Hell, I've seen you almost have an aneurysm because of somebody. <laughs> I thought there was definitely going to be one of your veins on the side of your head or your forehead that was going to pop open and suddenly like start squirting across the table. I um, I think the the key to be the most Chad Chill guy is um, have the presence of mind of the people around you. You know, think of like. Oh, this would be really cool if, you know, maybe our characters tied together or, you know, it would be cool if we developed a story like this and say RC had a badass moment and you were able to support him in the moment. Or say, you know, your party's composition is goofy and you're like, okay, well, I'll come in and I'll be the cleric or whatever. I think it's that guy that we're looking for. Yeah, I brought it up at work today in a meeting. It's like, hey, guys, we all row together. Otherwise, we row in circles. You got to sometimes keep your mouth shut, but we all have to go the same direction. Well, the Chad guy can also be the anchor. The stable kind of level thing where the chaos players and the lawful players can kind of balance off of, you know, because if you don't, it's sort of like in stand-up in comedy routine. If you don't have a straight guy, your jokes aren't as fun. Yeah, you need the foil there to make the comedy better. Exactly. Abbott and Costello. 
Well, moving to the next one, RC, it's your favorite, the whiner. Oh boy. I've had a bad day. I'm real sad. It's been terrible, guys. I don't want to do this no more. Wah, 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 wah. The whiner's... The, the whiner I've, is... I've rolled 1780s, and like, the game master's looking over there. It's like, yeah, me too, boss. Me, me too, me. man. Uh, the whiner is... It's a special place. Really, the wine, the winer could be any of the previous archetypes that we've gone over. Well, um, many of them devolve into it. Especially... Go ahead. Back to you, RC. Well, especially when things haven't gone the way that they've set themselves up to be. So, the Mackie can turn into the winer if nobody is doing anything in any seriousness. The Fairweather fans, I don't think that may be the one that hasn't turned into the winer yet, unless they're just getting tired of the game. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of the last stage of the archetype, of any of the archetypes. I can see the winer, be, or the Fairweather friend becoming the winer, especially when they want to go to whatever the new hip-hop game is. And you're making them play this game. You know, like, why are we playing this? You know, this just came out. We got the rules loaded. We should play this instead, you know. Well, now, do, you, do you guys think the, the whiner is the end of the road for these? Or do you think it, that's where it starts and then it kind of evolves into one of the more niche archetypes? It's one of the last like steps in the downward spiral of like, why are we playing with you? Because like the problem with the whiner is you're sucking everyone else's time and energy like a time vampire. Well, Good. you can see a life thread going of like, say, like a power gamer devolves into a whiner that devolves into a cheater before they're finally kicked. And and oh boy, it it, it tanks the room like. It'll it'll make you go from a Chad Shill guy to like a, um, you know, a, a bloodthirster real quick with with a vein on your head. Uh, <laughs> um, and also look at the winers, kind of like a wet blanket. They just they just come in and they're there to spread their depression to the rest of the party. And that's a good um, lead, Pat, because like the next one we we're going to talk about is the nitpicker, where like every if everything doesn't match their standards, you're going to fucking hear about it. Yeah, and the nitpickers sometimes can be... I mean, I feel like a lot of these archetypes are very fluid, and you can be multiple all at the same time very easily. Um, I'd say the nitpicker is just... I don't know. It, it seems very synonymous with the M Mr. Mackey-like. Everything has to be exactly how their headcanon perceives it, and if it's not, then they're not having a good time. And then they devolve into the liner. Or, like you said, you mentioned that's very fluid. You could also see the rules layer. It's like, that rule's not right. It's got to be, it's supposed to be do 2d6, not 3d6. And I've seen the nitpicker also come out of a lot of grog. You know, like, that's not how we played it. We played it this way. We did it this way. You should do it this way. This is this way and stuff. And, you know, I'm, as somebody that's gamed from, you know, very early on in the hobby, I've even caught myself 
doing. And like, you know, like, shut up, Sean. You're an idiot. <laughs> yeah. And I also feel like the nitpicker will will find one thing and they'll just hyper focus on it and it's just yeah. like uh, they will tear it down. Like that is their reason for their anger and despairs because um say, you know, we weren't we weren't you doing combat exactly as written in the book, but say Zach is doing something different from what's in the book because it makes the gameplay go faster. And it's just like, yeah, it's not rules as written, but hell, you know, it might be an improvement. I think you guys have told a story about a certain pet rock becoming a nitpicker talking about the realism of somebody's mad scientist. That's or if you can throw a spear or not, <laughs> or if your or if your uh, your accent's not Elvin. Brian, can you go into that um, spear debate for our listeners real quick so they can be a part of that? We were um, in the boathouse at for Temple of Elemental Evil, and. R.C. was hoarding spears and weapons that he found. And the ultimate idea was, I think we, like, we were going to come back and dig a Burmese tiger trap and put spears at the bottom. But this, Greg didn't didn't hear that conversation, or I, I don't know. But he was under the impression that we were going to like run away so we could throw spears at them. Um, I, and I don't know exactly where that came from, but that was never the intended thing. But it, you know, went to nitpicking slash rules lawyer. Like, can you even throw a spear? So you know, then there was a twenty minute divergence from the game, so Zach could look up the rules that, in fact, you can throw a spear. And um, I did not need to look up the rules. Well, you didn't have to, but you did because you like had to give that person proof or something. I don't, I don't know. It was just I, um, I, I wanted to bury it in such a way where it would never come up again. Zach wanted to take the book and just smack him with it, probably. <laughs> and that, that whole conversation is like, dude, you can throw spears in real life. Like, what are we even doing right now? Well, you should really be throwing a javelin, not a spear. Um, oh, do you one better? And in that battle, that's what you'll be throwing, not a spear. Not the spear. The, not the not the javelin you load into the atlatl. You'll be throwing the atlatl. <laughs> but there yeah. were no spears that were going to be thrown, so it was very. But I mean, if you're going to say no spears being thrown, you need to talk to you know almost you know. 300 years of Vikings throwing spears, you know, because they were or, breaking the rules. <laughs> or you mean the flint tools that brought us out of the Stone Age? Oh, that too. And, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what did they think well, a harpoon is? So exactly. Here with <laughs> strange tip. But that situation was a nitpicker trying, attempting to be a rules lawyer and failing at it, and it's just, it's just devolving down the game state and getting us off course and wasting our time. So, big negative. 
And sorry, I don't know. Sorry, I, 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 don't I was know. having Vietnam flashbacks of going through that whole conversation, and <laughs> it, it, it aged me forty years. He he's also a compliance cheater, um, because he just assumes the cheater at the table is the most lucky person on the planet. Um, I, I like that term, Brian. I like the compliance cheater. Yeah, because like he, he it's too de- like there's no way that this person would cheat. Like, are you kidding me? You you passed an accounting check? You're a thug. It starts at 5%, by the way. You want a hard success? I don't believe you. (laughs) And and it's just more of like, like, you are so flipping lucky. You get so many criticals. And the other guy's just like, oh, I don't know how. (laughs) It's just like, you know how, and you know how. Why are we doing the song and dance at this table? Oh, moving on to one of our last player-focused archetypes. I consider this one to be one of the early red flag ones. The 13th warrior, we've brought it up before. Hey, everyone else in the party is a Saxon or a Viking, and you're a French farmer. Or, you know, a spice dealer from the Middle East, but it's 502 AD. It's not that that isn't a, it's not that it's not a cool culture. It's just like one of these things doesn't belong. I I see I see where you're getting with this thirteenth warrior. Yeah, I say that one kind of messes me up as well. Especially like say we're in you know um, let's see Greyhawk setting or whatever, and you want to play a water genie elemental while the rest of the crew is like human elf dwarf halfling whatever and it's just like why are you going to be such a massive distraction that i don't know I, it, it perturbs me or the size 86 foot two german german u-boat captain in a post-world war two uh post post-world war one and size 95 size 95 and for reference for other people, that means that he's like six foot eight. He's I think I'm like, or, yeah. or, or he's like 300 pounds. Both are yep. issues in a U boat in World War One. Okay. Astronauts can't be over six four. I had to find that out the hard way. <laughs> Fun fact. <laughs> Did you know? But oh, I, I think the the big thing with this whole thirteenth warrior is consider consider the setting you're playing in. Consider your group composition before you're just like, I want to be RoboCop, and we're doing Curse of Straw. Like, no, fuck well, off. I told Zach about one that I had seen. Where somebody wanted to play like an android warforge. Pardon? In Tolkien's world, that's a that's a no for me, boss. Yeah, no. Yep. They wanted to play an android type warforged inside, you know, alongside Legolas and Gimli. So. Which is why I'm a big fan as a game master. Develop like eight concepts of characters and let your players pick from them. Don't like flesh them out 100%, just a general concept. 
That way, everyone's at least in the same wheelhouse. Well, that or at least say, you know, like, oftentimes if I'm a big fan of, like, you know, sword and sorcery type games like Falcon and Grey Mouse or Conan and stuff, and one of my standing rules in any of those games is you can only be human. End of story. You can be all the professions, basically, you know, but uh, for the most part, the one carryover is human, you know. You got to contain your concept into that. Well, that's what I like about Warhammer Fantasy. Like, if you want to be an elf, you got to roll like a 99 or like a 100 if you want to be like a wood elf. It's not happening. You have a 2% chance. Yeah, you're like, what is it, like 60 or 70% chance to be human? And then, like, maybe dwarf halfling and the others are like maybe like 15 and the elf's like that 2%. Well, I think games, Ogre has a 3%. I've seen oh, games that have, you know, limited things where it's like, okay, you know, where they'll, I've seen in older games where they would have like, all right, in a group of, say, six players, two can be non-human. And only one can be, um, you know, only one can be you know, say an elf and stuff. And so you have a dice off to see who gets to be the non-humans if they want to be and stuff. Everything. So, I mean, but I can see it going either way. But yeah, I mean, putting constraints as a GM is the GM's right to running their game. And don't don't chase being different just for the sake of being different. Like, you can That's, still be and be a human. Running <laughs> me, but like my character is a loaf of bread that uses mage hand to carry himself. I'm like, that's cool. I don't know what I'm going to do with that. Pick a normal character. Yeah. <laughs> or we're all making, you know, dungeon delvers, of, you know, human elf dwarf kind of thing. But I want to be a mimic. <laughs> Pardon? I think we're going to kill you as soon as you reveal that. <laughs> exactly. But I'm just saying that, you know, it's that type of player. You know, you know, Thirteenth Warriors, like, um, no. <laughs> okay, guys, this is for editing. Does anyone want to read the little paragraph for bedtime guy example? Is that gonna put us to sleep? I mean, I yeah, want some someone to read it because it's like that's why we don't want to do that stuff like that. <laughs> and why are you gonna kill Pat? Oh, making me go, th- making me go through the fucking spear story again. Oh, oh, Make- making me go through flashbacks of that shit. And you want me to give an example of the bed? Break into an example of the bedtime, GM. Like I put a paragraph in the chat if you want to read that. Okay. Okay. Right. I got it. Not a problem. And then. Editing Zach, edit this section out. What do you know? Should you randomly have us take over at different times so you can layer it out? Well, all right. One of the other archetypes is the bedtime GM. The long-winded reading of text that will put you to sleep. Or at least make you question your life choices and ending up at that gaming table. The Tomb of Horrors, somewhere under a lost and lonely hill of grim and foreboding aspect, lies a labyrinthine 
crypt. It is filled with terrible traps and not a few strange and ferocious monsters to slay the unwary. It is filled with rich treasures, both precious and magical. But in addition to the aforementioned guardians, there is said to be a demi-lich who still wards his final haunt. Be warned, the tales have told it is, is that this being possesses powers which make him nearly undefeatable. Accounts relate that it is quite unlikely that any adventurers will ever find the chamber where the demi-lich Asarak lingers. For the passages in the rooms of the tomb are fraught with terrible traps, poison gases, and magical protections. Furthermore, the Demi-Lich has so well hidden his lair that even those who avoid the pitfalls will not likely be able to locate their true goal. So only large and well-prepared parties of the bravest and strongest should even consider the attempt. And if they do locate the tomb, they must be prepared to fail. Any expeditions must be composed of characters of high levels and varied classes, and they must have magical protections and weapons, and equip themselves with every sort of device, imposs device possible to ensure their survival. Now, you have been traveling for many, many days. The road has been dusty, you're tired, you're wanting to go forth and find this treasure, but yet you still wander perilously through the trails and backways of the woods looking for the lost tomb of horror. John, I think you did just a little bit better than bedtime guy. <laughs> I know you were trying to be bad, but well, thank you, Sean. Also, I, I picked that paragraph because it, it is shorter than some of the later ones. Some oh, of the second, second, second edition ones like this is like three pages. Oh yeah. And they expected you to read it. Because it was boxed, which, you know, they told you in the beginning, everything boxed should be read to the player. That's a nightmare. Yep. Especially when it's it's size 10 font, three pages long, three columns. Because <laughs> my thing is, is how much of that are the players actually going to retain? Or is it just me having a, a short attention span? I don't, I don't know if it's a me or a them thing, but... So sometimes it was to set the mood. Like, that's a good... Like, the one Sean read was not super long, and it did set, like, a tone. But some of the ones from Temple of Elemental Evil is, like, you're counting the number of, like, hat hooks in a, in a room. It's like, no one cares. Yep. It's, you know, it's the ridiculous detail. Like, you know, there are rat droppings all over the floor. You know, you find three copper pieces if you sift through the silt on the ground and it's just the hey i'm gonna read the entire module to you i've heard of people doing it for board games but i've never run into it where someone will read the whole rule book to the table it's like no that's not happening that sounds awful i will physically like remove the rule book from that person's hands oh the worst is when you get a rules lawyer who's breaking into that. Like, it says uh, right uh, here. Uh, oh, then, then like the person has to like go back and either reread or correct it, or they get lost. And maybe yep. these four paragraphs takes like an hour to read now. Yep. And they will be like, see right here, paragraph three. You know, line twelve says, you know, and it's like. Dude, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. 
And it's usually easy to tell a nap time guy as a as a game master. You better figure it out. Like if your players are not in the sleep, stop. There are exceptions. Like if this is the one or few time, one or two times in the whole campaign, you're gonna do it. Just preface that to the players and let them know. And then it's only gonna come up a couple times. But when it's all the time, no one has time to like you know have story time at at two and then juice and a nap at three. Well, I know what I was going to say. It's just that, you know, when you look up from reading text and everybody at the table is looking at their phone and they're not, you know, fair weather players, you know you've done something wrong here. <laughs> Thank you for that, Sean. And Pat, moving on to the next Game Master archetype to avoid. Uh, GMPCs. I know we both hate this one. So GMPCs, what we mean by this are they're essentially characters that the GM either has played in the past or they have thought up and they're like, oh, my God, it will add so much to this campaign. And I've been guilty of it before putting some of mine in games. Um, But often what happens with these guys is they either... If they ever outperform the rest of the party, or there are so many of them that are so powerful that the party just doesn't feel like the main character anymore, they feel like side characters in your story, that's when you know you need to stop. Um, Zach and I have definitely been in a campaign like this before. It's like, well, why are we even playing if the GMPCs are doing 70% of the work and any a chalkboard to me as a player. Oh, God. Because essentially, you're as a GM, you're there to tell or help the players tell a story, their stories, you know, not your own story. Um, and whenever you just have too many GMPCs that are way too powerful, you just take the spotlight off your players, which is not what we're there for. And to be clear, we're not talking about an NPC being ran well or with has a lot of character or is spoken in voice. We're talking about like the game master, like fully like running a character. And also designing adventures around the idea that you can't succeed at their adventure unless you have the NPC there to save the day and you know be able to swoop in and fix everything for you. And sometimes it can be a, a tight rope to walk, tight rope to walk. Uh, Pat, do you remember Tenzin from Children of Fear? I was very conservative with how I used him. Yeah, we basically you only used him whenever we were like pretty much looking straight at Tenzin, like, "Hey, bud, we need some help or guidance here." So in that situation, it was a great, you know, GMPC. He was there for guidance when we needed it and asked for it. But he took a, a step back and let us do our thing, you know, should we need to do it. Um, so, yeah, it is, it is a fine line. You definitely need to figure out how to do that if you're having, you know, characters come and go with the party. But just just keep the spotlight on the characters. Another yeah. classic example is N1 the module and number N1, the cult of the reptile god from back in AD&D first, where you can almost not 
as a party of first and third level characters complete the adventure without having alive the NPC six level magic user to cast his spells as the module is written if you're running it per yep, but we have to forgive them a little bit and we've learned how to make better adventures in terms of 40 years of experience but yeah GMPCs suck I bare I barely can even stand like cameos like oh it's your former party and they just wave and walk on by. That's the best you're getting out of me. You're getting like they're in the background somewhere. You're not going to run in and talk to them. Once I once made the mistake of like making one of my GMPCs, you know, pivotal for the storyline. And he was, I think we were a, a smaller uh, group playing D&D. So he was kind of a player character as well. And I was just focusing too much on him and not on my players. So. It, it can happen. It also can be a sign that whoever is the GM needs some time on the other side of the screen to play a character. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's... It, to me, it seems like the GM version of cheating, like creating a character that's necessary or uber-powerful, Kind of like power gaming, too, I guess. I don't know. Brian, you definitely went with a much nicer description than I was going to give of self-fellatio. Uh, uh, just trying to be a, a chill guy. Well, the next Game Master archetype to avoid is favoritism. And I do mean clear, demonstrous favoritism. Pat gets two gold coins, and RC gets a plus two sword. Well, that uh, that's not very fair. The one I always love is, okay, you guys all take eight points of damage, but she, you know, Sarah, my um, girlfriend here, she they missed her, so she's going to step in now. Yeah, that's a very specific kind of favorism that I also hate is nepotism. It happens in board games too. It's like, no, it's like, I know you're related and maybe this game might have ramifications after for you two, but you need to play this game that you're both players. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, that, that was definitely one I was going to bring up. Um, whenever we were Ferengi, Zach, though, we did stab each other on the, on the third round. <laughs> <laughs> You can't be lovey-dovey all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, you got you to gotta put her in her place sometimes. Okay, Pat, uh, you know that might be left hey, in the recording. M- M- Michelle, if, if you're listening to this, I love you, babe. <laughs> I plead the fifth. Michelle, if you would like a separate recording of this to be played back at any time in, a curtain, in, in part of an argument, let me know. Five ninety nine for the first two minutes. What have I done? Well, it's nice knowing you guys. <laughs> but either way, like, n- no one likes clear favoritism and no one likes nepotism. I have a feeling in our Saturday game with Ian that I get pointed out for favoritism. I think that's more of a personality of mine. Like, I can be very forward as a player in games. Which is technically kind of a way of GM hugging, and I don't try to be, but also arguably the player that might f- 
feel this is very quiet and doesn't do much. But I would let RC not going to be in the library or in the science lab making gadgets. Uh, we we took that from him. Oh, that's right. We as in you and Ian. Well, my, suggest- my suggestion, my suggestion to Ian. If you're going to practice navel gazing, you got to expect everybody to keep moving around. Moving on to the next negative game master archetype. RC, it's your favorite, Mr. Conductor. Ooh, let's hop on the rails because we're going on a not so crazy train because uh, you're going to do what I tell you to do. And um, we're going to keep you down this track. And you're going to like it. You're going to like it. <laughs> And not only are you on this track, you are on this track regardless of anything that happens. Yep. This is this is the railroad. This is the driver and conductor of the train. And uh, you guys are just all on his little ride. This is another way of saying demonstrative masturbation. You know, I mean, it's like, watch me make myself happy. Yep. Yep. Yep, or they're so bound to like the module, like it's like, no, it says four pieces of gold. The party will get exactly four pieces of gold. They will get no more. They will get no less. They will have no opinion on it. No, I, I very much had a GM that ran Storm King's Thunder like this, and it was a slog. It was I'm, told, I'm told that book is a slog to begin with, like just the book itself. So someone but- having someone like proctor it to you and i do mean proctor not not game master proctor it you know i was sitting here thinking is there a campaign out there that's entirely on a train and i'm like wait there's a few i can think of or on the orient express (laughs) because it completely takes place on a train uh relatively but that that campaign is a little up front like hey work with your players let them know it was like Hey, you gotta give me some wiggle room because like part of the setting is you're on this train. So you're gonna be on rails in terms of like the train will stop here because that's the next destination. But when will it stop? The thing is, is also with that, is with the right type of GM, if you go whole hog and do something that is going to stop the train, they're gonna stop the train. Unlike the railroad GM, which is going to be like, no, the train doesn't stop. But I just put dynamite under the. <laughs> you in fact and accelerated it... the train forward, and it and it jumped the gap, uh, speed style. Yep, kind of you know, Back to the Future Part Three, you know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's no deviation. Well, I'm going to go, you know. I'm going to leave the town and go over to that village to see if anybody knows any information about this NPC. No, you're not. You are going to stay in the city. Because this adventure takes place in the city and they did not write about the village, so you're staying here. I rolled three 20s. Like, nope, it takes four successes. I rolled three crits. It takes four successes. Or, you know, hey, you know, I'm going to see if I can come up the backside of this building using my thief abilities to get into the top window. No, you have to go through the front door. <laughs> Why? It's like all the other doors are magically sealed, except for this side door, this one exact one. Now, 
in, in y'all's play, Sean or Zach or RC or anybody, um, have y'all actually like run into a DM that actively says like, no, you're not doing this. You're doing this. Cause I, I in my travels, I've never done it. I, I've, I've been hit with like, Oh, I would like to go, go over there. And it's like, Oh, well, there's um, a gang of ogres over there that'll like rip your head off and shit down your neck. You know, it's never been bluntly like, no, you're not doing this. No, I, t- I, don't. I, t- I tend to set decorated if I have to. It doesn't come up very often. Yeah, I most of the time it's been something like, you know, like, no, like you said, like, oh, they're ogres over there, you know, obviously too powerful for you to fight, you know, and then some other characters like, screw it, I'm going to try to fight them. No, you're not, you know, and, and it gets into things where like oh, a bolt of lightning comes down from the heavens and strikes you, stops you from going over there, or, you know, and. The lady, the lady of pain shows up and gives you a crisp high five. Yep. And, you know, I mean, sure, it's decorated, but you know what the intent is, that you can't deviate, you know. Now, there is a little bit to me of acceptable, a little bit of acceptability of railroading. And I can bring up a specific example. It's the Lost City module. Um, I think Goodman Games did a reprint of it with a 5e version and such and in that module the premise is that a terrible sandstorm has happened and you've been your caravan has been lost crossing this desert and you're out of water and you find the entrance into this subterranean thing around you though is just my endless miles of desert there's kind of thing so you're kind of put in a position where you have to go into the, the basically the dungeon kind of thing. And, you know, to me, that's more upsetting the scene versus a railroad, even though it's got some railroady characteristics. Because if a party says, no, screw it, we're going to keep on walking, okay. <laughs> Yeah, and, <laughs> and once again, like the Mr. Conductor, there's nothing wrong with keeping the whole story like on terms of on time versus goals. And sometimes you do have to put the players on the track. It's once again the extreme of like, no, you will only do this. There is no variation, only this. Well, it's also a lot of times the railroad GM comes out, especially in some of these adventures and some of these even homebrewed adventures with GMs where it's like the party is going to save the world. You know, if you don't complete the mission, the world ends. And so you have to make it through a lot. You know, no matter what you do as a player, well, my character's not going to die. Hey, he's proven that, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. Instead of letting the con. Well, the partner or the buddy to Mr. Conductor is the writer. This is the game master who wants to write a book using his RPG experience and his players, whether they want him to or not. What are um what are some like facets of the writer as far as like at the tables are? Sometimes it's too much detail. Too much detail. Maybe, maybe instead of offering advice for your character, offering like clear, pointed direction, like 
No, you are a Vangorian guardsman. You would never do that. Or they provide all this backstory and all this deep lore. It's kind of like Bedtime Guy, once again, is like, okay, that's really cool that this, this kingdom had seven princes. How does that affect me personally right the hell now? I'll give you a real-life example of writer GM. He was also a bit of a railroader and a bedtime guy. But he designed this whole adventure this way back years ago. And he said, I wrote up, you know, the background information for each, you know, this is the character you need to roll up, you know, pick your, from your standard classes, but this is, and, you know, and he had, like, 18 different background stories and you chose a number handed it to you the average background story was 18 pages front and back and it was like the like high school melodramatic you know this was in high school but you know it was bad and it was like you know if this was a real book i would put it down but this is pretty bad to have to go through. It was, you know, dream sequences. You know, we had it all. <laughs> oh yeah, it's more of being I'm... more of being the director of the story as the game master, as in like, no, no, no. The players are are the puppets, and the game master is running them. They they have no input. Okay. You're there so... basically to roll the dice. Okay, so you're you basically the writer is there to tell the story of the players to the players without the players' involvement. Okay. Another okay. way of saying it, and maybe instead of a writer, maybe a little better description would be the, like, as Zach kind of brought up, the puppet master. You know, you got the marionette strings attached to everybody. Watch me dance. And then the last archetype I have, and you guys can, of course, add any, is the Scrooge GM. Oh, it's been like four sessions. Like, here's your 100 XP and 10 gold. Or the uh, the post-Christmas spirits version where you're giving everything away. Oh, yeah. It's like, you get Monty a fr- hauler. Yeah, you get the frost band and you get a, you know, flame brand and you get five Vorpal swords. Well, the Scrooge GM was kind of the pendulum swinging back away from the Monty Hall GM. The Monty Hall GM was one where you would run into these guys that, you know, and the players would be like, look at my 42nd level ranger, you know. He's got Thor's spear, or Thor's hammer, and, you know, um, he's got Stormbringer, and he's got Arthur's arm, and you know, these things, and, you know, and so in response, the whole gaming community moved to this miser maneuver. And it's like, then you get, like, the Mega Dungeon Dwemer where it's like, the biggest treasure hall in the first level of the Mega Dungeon is 1,000 copper pieces for the whole dungeon. And this is like a almost a 100 room dungeon on the first level. And 1,000 coppers is the biggest treasure you're and some of this is also system based. I think Call of Cthulhu do, does it well. It's like there aren't very many artifacts you can find, and the rare tomes are rare. 
Like you're just not going to randomly find them. And again, like you said, it is system based because, especially in the old D and D, all your experience was based on your treasure. So you got basically like one XP for every gold piece you found, and you know, killing an orc might get you ten or twenty XP, and you needed like two thousand to get to second level. Which is why if you go back and read Temple of Elemental Evil or the Vigil Hamlet, you're like, why do all these people have so much money? It's like, that's why. But instead of changing the tr- the experience system or value of treasure, like, you know, I've seen it brought up guys saying, well, instead of, you know, saying one XP for every gold piece, how about you say, you know, uh, 10 XP for every gold piece? And then suddenly, you know, you only need to put 100 XP out you know, talking old school systems, just to get a thousand experience points. No one, no one ever really wants to like. Oh, you pulled five jobs. Here's your one experience point. Because like, if you play like Shadowrun, like you do like a whole good mission, you might get one point of XP. Now that's a different system, but like D and D can't handle that. Uh, does anyone else have any other archetypes or any comments? I, I don't. I, I feel pretty enlightened, though, learning some of these. has been fun. I'd say, um, as like a, a final comment for me, is um, don't let knowledge of any of these player archetypes or GM archetypes deter you from playing and or GMing. Like we said, um, we've done a lot of these ourselves. And uh, sometimes, you know, that's that's the journey. Those are the steps you got to take. You got to be the murder hobo to eventually become the chill Chad. You know. Yeah, these are um, all. These are all. Take these as all learning experiences. Well, also, I mean, if you game long enough, like you said, Pat, you're going to go through all of these at some point, somewhere. Except for the only exception, I would probably say is the cheater. That's the one one that. It's sort of like, to me, it's like, I don't, I mean, I can understand, you know, the budging a dice roll to say, you know, did you pass your sanity check? No, I didn't pass it, you know, to make the story move better, or, you know, as a player, but to cheat, to just benefit yourself, to me, that, that's, that is an underlying problem. Well, I think a big part of our podcast, this episode and in general is, talking about getting different experience through either through different games or different players. So next week's topic is going to be all about exploring a new system. And I want to thank all our listeners, and I hope everyone has a good evening. That's all for now.